Take a quick perusal through any TV guide, and you're bound to see home improvement and design shows in the rundown. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get hooked on them for hours on Saturday mornings. After Cityscape, of course. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki. And instead of watching TV shows and home design this morning, I'm talking home design. This is Cityscape, the home design edition, on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. When you live in New York City, space is often a luxury. A lot of folks here live in small apartments. But the question is, can you live large in cramped quarters? With us now with the answer is Ilya Azarov. He's the director of the Design Collective Studio in Manhattan. Ilya, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for having me, George. So can you express personal style in a 200-square-foot apartment? Absolutely. Absolutely. It might be a little difficult, but just think of uh, think of a space um, at 200 square feet. Uh, it's almost like a suit that you're putting on top on yourself. You know, you get up every morning and you put this thing on and that's it. Yeah, here in New York City, you could have a 200 square foot apartment or maybe a thousand square feet, but still not very big. New York is one of those places that um, you have to make the most of every inch you have. Every space in your place is is a viable uh, location for something or, or making it better. So uh, there's a lot of strategies to that. So how do you approach the space? When you walk in, you have this empty canvas. What do you do with it? We like to look at the spaces that uh, perhaps can take advantage of the one element that drew you to the space. For New Yorkers, generally, it's, well, you know, it's the only space available, and I stood around the I stood in the line of 14 people to get the space, but there's something that attracted you to it, whether it's the view, the one window, the, the, the personal thing that, that drew you to it. And that's generally where we start and how you highlight that. I would think you have to have a lot of discipline when you have a small space. You can't buy everything. In a small space, you really have to be choosy. But, uh, you know, now a lot of design elements are really well put together design elements are available to the general public at a very low price. And that is really great about what's happening with the commodification of good design. You know, people are aware of these personal items that uh, can make the space. Where do you go in New York City? You can't go to Fortune Off. You're not going to find something no, you to can't. fit in a studio. No, absolutely not. But what you could do is um, take a look at secondhand. Um, also go on Craigslist. Uh, sometimes people will include their photographs of things. Stoop sales if you're out in Brooklyn or up here in the Bronx. What are your recommendations when it comes to the bed? A bed takes up a lot of space. And you know what? I wouldn't be willing to sleep on a twin bed anymore. Generally, you look at hideaway beds or loft bed conditions. Um, day beds are really great. Day bed has a trundle underneath, perhaps, that you can actually have guests stay over, things like that. Or convertible beds, uh, something that is a, a couch that folds out. And those are the things that will help you maximize the space. And screening is a good idea. Separate your bedroom area from your living space. Do you recommend that? I think screening um, in these optional fold-away walls or optional fold-away screens uh, can give you a sense of enclosure and privacy. Storage is a big issue when you live in a small space. But I'm sure you can get pretty creative with having useful things that you can store things in. That is always a trick. If you're a little queasy about a loft bed or you've graduated from being... You know, being a university student, perhaps, and you have uh, you don't want to have a loft bed anymore. That sort of loft condition or that really high space could be really great for storage. Other things are you know under the bed or taking advantage of of above cabinets in your kitchenette. Above the cabinets in kitchenette, typically a cabinet will only go so high to reach space, but absolutely above that, you can install new sets of shelves, new sets of cabinets. 
So therein lies all sorts of possibilities for other storage space. Do you have any advice for a dining area? A dining area? (laughs) If there's a good restaurant in the neighborhood, there's a good dining area. (laughs) For a small space, I mean, a good dining area is is a little two-person table. One thing that listeners should be aware of is that round tables take up innately less space because a square table, uh, you're invariably putting it against the wall and it feels like it's against the wall. But a round table, even though it's against the wall, still feels like it's in the space. So sometimes the shape has a lot to do with what you're putting in the space and how it feels. Is there anything you can do with lighting to make your place look bigger? (laughs) Well, turn them off and imagine that you're... (laughs) But yeah, absolutely. If you have windows, that is the light that you want to have, make it feel like uh, there's something beyond. Um, With whatever lighting you have in the space, uh, make sure that it's adequate for the task that you have, but maybe that one light, that one object that is the centerpiece of your space that either hangs down in your space or is a floor lamp really speaks to who you are and what you want to um, develop the space into. Um, if you can, as I did, did mention, floor lamp, you may want to stay away from that. If it's a really small space, the less furniture, the better. So look at hanging things from above. What are some of the biggest mistakes you think people make when they move into a small space? Well, they, they move in with uh, just about every bit of furniture under the sun, obviously just living on top of bits and pieces of furniture. It's a matter of getting rid of things. And also, if you really look at a space, uh, look at what materials are innately in the space. If you have wood floors, great. Um, if uh, One thing that you should also avoid is pattern. Too much pattern uh, is sort of like visual clutter. So all of the elements you bring into the space not only add to that visual clutter, but say you have pattern on the wall and then you put down three or four little rugs, then you have these little pieces and 12 things hanging on the wall and this, that, the other thing. That visual clutter makes it feel claustrophobic. It makes it feel like your eye has to read all of those things. You know, the old adage, less is more, it really is for one of these spaces. Less is a lot more. Small spaces are really like jewels or little boxes that when you get into the space, look at what those innate properties are, why you love the space, and really highlight those. And if you polish any jewel or any diamond in the rough, eventually that thing's going to sparkle. And when that sparkles, your life is so much more improved if you enjoy the space you're in. And style is is a personal choice. If you find something you like, however quirky it is, bring it into the space. That expresses you. Your space expresses who you are. So you should really listen to your inner self. Ilya, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Ilya Azarov is director of the Design Collective Studio in Manhattan. The use of color plays a crucial role in home design, but experts say it's far from black and white. Ethel Rompilla is a professor at the New York School of Interior Design and the author of a book on color published by Abrams. Ethel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Has color always played a strong role in interior design? I think throughout history, color has been our connection with nature. We have the blue sky, the green trees, the red of flowers and fruits and berries. In traditional construction, the walls were thick, the windows small, so the colors of nature were brought indoors to brighten the rooms. 
The villas of Pompeii had beautiful frescoes of gardens and fountains. Medieval tapestries were woven with scenes of flowers and birds. In later centuries, paintings of landscape scenes brought nature indoors. Now, in modern construction, instead of a wall, we have a thin layer of glass that separates us from the outside. So this has really changed the way we look at interior design. The view replaces the painting on the wall. I don't know if you've been to uh, Philip Johnson's glass house in New Canaan. No. You should go there. It's wonderful. You're in this little glass box and just separated from nature by glass all around you. So it's quite a change from having four walls. Do different cultures view color differently? Climate is a major factor. People in warm climates where the scenery is very, very bright lean towards bright colors. Uh, Gray flannel would look out of place in, in a tropical climate. In northern climates where the skies are more overcast, then people will look towards more muted colors. But there are exceptions. Um, In London, we have historic examples of rooms that are painted uh, bright yellow to kind of bring the sunshine in on rainy days. But I had a wonderful lesson taught to me by a student from the Caribbean. I was explaining the concept of our perception of warm and cool colors. Warm meaning red, orange, yellow. Cool colors meaning uh, blue and green. It reminds us the warm colors of fire, the blue and greens of cool water or the shade of a tree. And she looked at me and she raised her hand. She said, I don't understand what you mean about warm, cool. She said, where I come from, we're never cold. So how can that be a cold (laughs) color to us? Lesson learned. Lesson learned, not only for me, but for the rest of the class. It was a wonderful example for everybody. So give us some advice. How should we approach color when designing a room? We should separate color for interiors from clothing, packaging, graphics, where the colors are often very, very harsh. They're meant to get our attention. We should not think of color as one-dimensional. Color is really three-dimensional. You have light, medium, dark colors. You have colors that are very bright. You have colors that are very neutral. So you just can't say a color is a color. There's so many other facets to this color that have to be considered, especially for interiors. We should think of the proportions of color to neutrals. Very often we think of just color and forget about the neutrals, the whites, the grays, the blacks, the browns, the cool browns, the deep navies, the taupes. Those are very important. I think it's very good to learn from fine art, and I use a lot of examples in my class. If you study paintings, how does the artist use warm colors, cool colors? What is the proportion of colors to neutrals? How do these colors define form and shape? There's so much we could learn uh, from paintings. It's much more than just walking into the paint store and looking at those little swatches. And say it's going to go, yeah. Now, as far as people, some studies claim that red causes arguments, yellow makes babies cry, green in a dining room can, you know, cause nausea. Uh, Restaurants sometimes use red to stimulate the appetite. I never heard the green in the dining room causes nausea. That goes way back. Yeah, some greens, not all greens, but if you think of it, I don't think you'd see green in an airplane cabin. You know, it could be a little bit of a problem. Again, with the right green, it may work. 
I think it depends on how the color is used. Another good thing to remember is that medium tones are better for rooms that are used most often. You don't want that shocking pink. And then bolder colors are good for rooms that are used not used as much. It's kind of a relief and a change. People get bored. They do like some change. Also, again, generally speaking, the largest areas, such as the walls, should be more neutral. And as you get smaller in size, you can up the chromatic value. But this, like all rules, it can be broken. And it can be broken successfully, or it can be broken with disaster as a result. Many people here in New York City live in small spaces that could be a studio apartment. I would imagine that you should choose colors that will make that space look bigger. Light or cool colors tend to recede and make a room look larger, uh, while warm or dark colors will advance and make a room look smaller. But it also depends on the saturation of a color. A very, very bright blue can advance almost just as much as a red. But I think dark colors are okay for some rooms. They're kind of cozy. So if you have a studio apartment, your main room may be a light color, but there's nothing wrong with having a dark, cozy hallway. Just, again, as variety has changed, maybe a dark kitchen because you have light cabinets, so you may want to do uh, pull some dark colors in there. People need variety. People need change. It's interesting because many landlords want mm-hmm. you to simply leave the walls right. white. Right. Well, that's where you bring colors into the furnishings. You bring it into the furniture, the draperies, etc. Speaking of furnishings, mm-hmm. I would imagine that the intensity of color changes when it's seen next to different fabrics. Yes, and it's called simultaneous contrast, or more simply, visual mix. This is why I say don't struggle to match too carefully, because your eye is going to mix those colors in a different way. Simply put, when a color is seen against another color, not only the intensity, but the color itself can change. Um, There's also a contrast effect, where a light next to a dark will make the light look lighter and the dark look darker. Do you have any thoughts about painting the ceiling? Because I'm sure if your ceilings are low, then you can paint it a certain color to make it look higher? Well, usually lighter to make it look higher. But that, you have to be very careful. You have to be subtle when you paint ceilings. Obviously, if you have a huge room, you know, traditional rooms, they've painted scenes on the ceilings, which are lovely. How much does lighting impact color in a room? Lighting is extremely important. So when you are looking at fabrics, you have to look at them both in daylight in evening light, in fluorescent, incandescent, whatever uh, you are using. Lighting always affects color. Uh, Bright colors can look garish in a a sunny room, while dark colors, you need more intense chroma because they may look drab. I always say don't test a color on the wall because you may be testing it on the dark corner of the wall or the light corner of the wall. You really should do it on a board painted white so that you can see how it looks in all lights and move it around the room. Another thing to consider is we're into energy conservation. So a dark color will absorb light while a light color will reflect light. 
So if you paint a room dark, you're going to need to up the wattage, which is going to up the electricity bills. So you have to be careful of that. Mm-hmm. If a room is used frequently, I would say that's not a good idea. But in a little used room, I love dark rooms. What are the biggest mistakes do you think people make when it comes to bringing color into a room? Too much color is one big mistake. Also, uh, it becomes tiresome over time. Too few neutrals. We tend to think of color and exclude neutrals. I keep talking about the neutrals I, I, over and over, but they are so important. If Again, if you look at great art, it's, well, some modern art is just color, which is fine, but even modern art has some lights, some whites, some blacks, some grays. So those neutrals are extremely important. I think another big mistake is colors in big areas that are too bright. You pick a color from a 3 by 5 inch swatch, and when it gets on a an 8 by 12 or 15 foot wall, all of a sudden it just knocks you over. It's uh, so bright. I think... A lot of times, even pale colors can be too chromatic, too sweet, too sugary, you know, bubblegum pink instead of a nice, soft, uh, restful pink. So even pale colors usually need to be grayed out a little bit, again, unless it's a very dark room. But you need to be very sensitive to the uh, chromatic intensity of pale colors as well as uh, dark ones. What do you think our choice of colors has to say about our personalities? The existing theory is people who prefer red are extroverted. People who prefer blues or cool colors are more introverted. But again, are we talking clothing or interiors? There's a big difference. You put this red sweater on because Mm -hmm. it was a cold day, but in the summer, you might select a blue sweater. You have that choice, but once it's on your walls, you're not going to paint them every day. Right, right. So you really have to think about it. Again, it depends on the occupations of people. People who are chefs and wear white all day may want some color when they go home. Or people who wear, you know, navy suits and gray suits may want color when they go home. Or people in fashion or merchandising, when they're blitzed with color all day, may just want to come home to a very serene, restful, neutral room. What about paint? Do you have any advice on paint? Paints are much better if they have admixtures of many colors instead of just two or three colors. There's a subtlety to them. You can't tell if that red is really red or does it have a hint of blue, a hint of purple. It's neutralized with a bit of green. They're complex colors. They're much more pleasing and interesting. Again, nature has more complex colors. So I think learning and observation, visits to museums, lectures, show houses will make these choices easier. You mean I just can't put on the TV and watch one of these home improvement shows? I spend my life breaking bad habits of students (laughs) that they've learned on uh, the TV shows. Ethel Rompilla, thank you so much for your advice. Thank you so much for having me. Ethel Rompilla is a professor at the New York School of Interior Design. Her book, Color for Interior Design, is out now from Abrams. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A lot of people who redecorate their homes do it the feng shui way. They rearrange furniture, paint their walls another color, and do other things to achieve balance and harmony in their living spaces. But feng shui consultant Carol Provenzale says the ancient Chinese practice has a lot more to it than that. There are so many misconceptions about feng shui, I thought I'd try and clear up a few of them. Feng shui is not considered by most to be either a religion or a science. 
and is no longer considered New Age malarkey. Actually, the art of feng shui is defined as the mindful art of placement, and its roots have been determined to be between three to 5,000 years old. We relate feng shui with the connection to nature and the universe to seek harmony and balance in our surroundings. Although energy cannot be seen, it certainly can be felt. If you think about the principles of the secret which resonated with so many people, it closely follows feng shui principles. While they use the law of attraction, we use the word intention. While they tell you to take action, we ask you to make changes, all while keeping your intentions in place. The secret wasn't a secret to us years ago. You do not need to believe in feng shui to have it work for you. Changes that are made in a person's surroundings have a deep and profound impact on them, and eventually they will feel or notice a difference. Many skeptics have changed their minds after a feng shui consultation. But the scope of feng shui is so far-reaching, I wonder how many people realize it even now. Many of us know it's about energy flow, furniture placement, color choices, directions, certain objects we can use, different methods of practice and schools of thought, and hundreds of topics and principles. It is also about mindfulness. For many of us, it has become a way to live. We are mindful of our families, our friends, complete strangers, and of course our clients. We treat them with respect always, and never forget that feng shui brings out the truth. Feng shui starts with you and your lifestyle. If you want to get back what you give out, make sure you are putting out the very best. It's a universal law, I believe, that what goes around comes around. If you don't live by these words, you can't expect the wonderful things you want to create to come back to you. We need to remember to always have respect and plain common courtesy for others, to value their opinions and beliefs, even if they differ from your own, and to choose a lifestyle consistent with feng shui principles in every aspect of what you do and say every day, and to do this without expectations. It is, simply put, to do the right thing. The clients that have the most difficulties in having feng shui work for them are not forthright and upfront or honest, caring and empathetic in their relationships or the way they choose to live their lives. These people are thankfully few and far between, but they should not expect wonderful things to come their way when they are not being the best person they can be in all areas of their lives. How do you choose to live? Are you trying to find the bright spot in a negative situation? Are you doing what you can do to help others, including clients, friends, associates, even strangers? Changing both your thoughts and your lifestyle are the first things you need to remember in feng shui. And it is especially important that you do not neglect yourself in the process. When you think of feng shui, go to the core. The lifestyle you live, the thoughts you put out, the random acts of kindness you provide others, and your values. This is at the very heart of feng shui. If you ever thought it was just about decorating, it encompasses so much more.
Carol Provenzale is a feng shui consultant from Long Island. She blogs at activerain.com. Whether you have two cats in the yard or goldfish in your living room, you want your home to look good, especially if it's on the market. Home improvement and design shows often provide tips on how to make your home more appealing to potential buyers. But is it as easy as it seems? Reface the kitchen cabinets, update the bathroom, rearrange some furniture, and boom, your home is sold. Donna Dazzo is a so-called home stager with Designed to Appeal, a company that helps to sell and rent homes in New York City and the Hamptons. Donna, good morning. Good morning. How does home staging differ from interior design or decorating? Interior decorating, you're basically decorating for the tastes and preferences and needs of the people who live there. But with home staging, what you're doing is you're making the house or apartment attractive to a wide range of potential buyers and renters so they could sell more quickly and for top dollar. I would imagine that's pretty challenging because you're dealing with so many different tastes. You are, but it's just there are things that you can do that are um, generically appealing so that when someone walks in the door, they just feel like as if they were home. You create what are called emotional connection points throughout the house so that when a buyer walks in, they feel like, I love this place. And most people start out shopping with logic. For example, I need two bedrooms, I need a pool in the backyard but they end up buying on emotion, and that's what you want to play up to, the emotional part of it. So tell me some of the things that you do when you walk into a home. Most people have too much stuff and too much furniture. So we'll take the excess clutter out of there, take out the excess furniture, rearrange the furniture for optimal placement. Same thing with accessories. People have too much accessories, and we'll edit that out. or remove their personal items because you want buyers to connect to the house, and they can't do that if there's a whole wall of somebody's Uh, baby pictures. Then we could also add furniture and accessories. Uh, We could either uh, rent them or the uh, client can purchase them. And uh, same thing with accessories like bedding and lamps and artwork, whatever we can do to enhance the decor of the um, apartment or home. And actually, this step is most important with a vacant home because vacant homes appear soulless, the client can have no can absolutely have no emotional connections to the home, and they actually appear smaller. Rooms will appear smaller when they're emptier. And the last thing that we do is uh, just simple but dramatic updates and changes. We may recommend to them that they uh, do updated lighting and fixtures, repaint some walls that may not be appropriate uh, colors, quick repairs, anything to make the home more attractive and to lessen the mental list of someone walking through, like a buyer saying, oh, I've got to fix that, I've got to fix that, and deducting dollars from the asking price. It's interesting, Donna, because I would think that people would want to look at an empty room. They would want that blank canvas to determine how their furniture would look in that home. No, actually, it's really hard for someone to envision an empty house. I myself even make that mistake. I'll walk into a room and I'll say, you know what, a king-size bed, I don't think it's going to fit in here, and then I'll actually measure the wall, and it can fit. So you just have no idea of the size of the room, the furniture that could fit in it, how the furniture would be placed. You just walk in and you just don't 
feel like I could live here, this is home. It all appears very cold and sterile. And then on the flip side of that, as you said, buyers simply can't look past the decor and clutter in the home. That's correct. Less than half of potential buyers will make it past the photos online or drive by the home. So you're losing more than 50% of people. Why do you think that's the case? Because they just cannot look past a cluttered or unappealing room. If the wall's painted orange, they start focusing on the orange wall and not really looking at the house. You see this on these home design shows. People walk into the house and they look at the walls. Wow, I really don't like that blue. And they don't think to themselves, well, I could repaint that wall. Most people don't have the imagination to envision what they can do with the home. Is home staging something that a homeowner or real estate agent can do on their own, or do they have to hire someone like you? Homeowners can do things like decluttering, um, because you're going to have to pack up anyway for the move. You can start removing personal items. But really, uh, with a homeowner, they cannot view their home through buyer's eyes. They're just so used to living there, they don't see the defects anymore. And they really don't have a designer's eye. Also, homeowners might not have the time or the patience because they're already overwhelmed with moving or looking for a new house. And with the real estate agent, do you really want your real estate agent to be running around doing this kind of stuff when they should be out trying to sell your house? In today's real estate market, which right now is pretty soft, a lot of people are concerned about losing money when they sell their house or apartment. Would they get their investment back if they hire a home stager? You have to look at staging as an investment and, and not an expense. And I understand that you know, when, when the market's soft, people are saying, you know, I, I just don't want to be losing any more money. But you're really investing in selling the house. With so many homes on the market today, you really need to differentiate your house from other houses that are on the market. Donna Dazzo, thank you so much. Thank you, too. Donna Dazzo is a home stager. She works in New York City and the Hamptons. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Rashida Winfield. Whether you're doing some home improvements or just lying around the house, we hope you have a great weekend.